Usually on the other side of fear is everything that we've always wanted. Whatever it is that's keeping you up at night or you're not wanting to do, and it could be a hard thing. It could disappoint people you love dearly. It could scare people you love dearly. It probably scares you. It's calling you for a reason. Welcome to episode 63 of the Assyrian Podcast. I'm your newest co-host, Peter Isaac Ibrahim, coming to you from Redwood City, California, the heart of Silicon Valley. The hustle and bustle of our daily lives can leave little room for impact in our local Assyrian communities, let alone the outside community that we live in. As a public servant working for a city, I'm all for local impact and community engagement. During the episode, I refer to Marianne as Marion. She forgave me and told me it's a common mispronunciation. Marianne Kanun is the president and CEO of the Stanislaus Community Foundation, a first-generation Assyrian-American who grew up in Modesto, California, my hometown. She also graduated from UC Davis. Marianne began her career in broadcast journalism before working for a number of years in public relations lobbying and legislative affairs. She has managed award-winning marketing campaigns for Fortune 500 companies. Marianne joined the Stanislaus Community Foundation as their CEO in 2012. The foundation provides grants and scholarships to community organizations in Stanislaus County. To date, the organization has invested nearly $17 million in local nonprofits and scholarships to students. In 2018, Marianne was the recipient of the Modesto Chamber of Commerce Distinguished Service Award. Lastly, support for this podcast comes from Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847-982-9516. And now, here's Marianne. So in 2012, you joined the Stanislaus Community Foundation as their CEO. Tell us about your role, the foundation's mission, and what are some of their achievements? Absolutely. Um, I joined after spending eight years at Community Hospice here in Modesto, and I became the CEO, gosh, I think I was about 39, almost 40 years old. And I was definitely looking to do something outside of healthcare and do something that impacted more people in the community. Yeah. And I felt at the time that the Community Foundation was the perfect vehicle for that. It's a fascinating um, concept to have a foundation that doesn't have just one source of funding, like private foundations, the most famous one being, let's say, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that does great work, one source of funding for private foundations. A community foundation Anybody can work with a community foundation to set up a philanthropic fund to achieve whatever it is they want to achieve. Okay. So when I started, we had 120 funds. We now have 160 funds. When I started in 2012, we had 12 million in charitable assets under management. We now have 40 million. So we've more than tripled our assets in about wow. six years. And it's just, you know, I'm talking about sort of the transactional side where we're doing philanthropy, grant making, scholarships, all geared towards this community. 87% of our dollars stay local. We give out from that forty million about two and a half million a year, and about four four hundred thousand in scholarships. Um, but all of that's fairly local. And what we've real what I'm most proud of, you know, when you ask about notable achievements, is our work in education. 
We started with Stanislaus Reads, which is a third grade literacy initiative, and then uh, shifted to include Stanislaus Futures, which is really focused on college graduation rates. Uh-huh. We always begin our change work with data first, and the data was so compelling in both of those areas that we felt compelled to take action. For third grade, only 30% of third graders locally read at grade level. 70% do not. And that, that's a canary in the coal mine, because if at third grade you're not reading by that grade level, sure. you're going to fall further behind in the years to come. You're no longer taught to read in fourth grade. You, you should have mastered reading as a fundamental skill. And in our community, 70% of kids are not. With Stanislaus Futures, the compelling data there was we have an 85% graduation rate from high school, which is awesome. And of that, only 19% will get their college degree within six years. So there's a huge drop-off of our high school graduates in pursuing college education. Mm. So I would say th- those two signature initiatives in the last five years have been, and we've done so much work in those areas that we're now starting to see the data shift and get better. So we're having population-level outcomes for both of those. So I would say that's probably the, the thing I'm most proud of. And we're not stopping there. We're now moving into economic opportunity as part of our leadership portfolio. Okay, so when you say local... Your local reach, what does that mean in terms of your foundation's reach? Yeah, so community foundations, there's about 700 community foundations around the country. Most people don't know that. So wherever you're listening, the podcast listeners, there's bound to be a community foundation in, in their community if they're in the United States. There's also community foundations in Canada. All community foundations share in common. One, we're all 501c3s, so we're nonprofits. But unlike any other nonprofit, we're a funder, first and foremost. We don't provide direct services. So where I used to work at hospice, we were obviously providing healthcare services for, for patients at the end of life. Um, Gallo Center for the Arts, you know, arts organizations are doing specific things. Homeless serving organizations are providing shelter. We are a funder to all of those other nonprofits. So we don't provide direct services. We're an intermediary. We work with philanthropists who have, you know, a lot of resource. They set up funds with us. And then we work with them to create a legacy that they want to achieve in the community or do something differently. Our area of concern, those other community foundations all have a, a geographic area that they're focused on. So there's okay. a Marin Foundation, there's a San Francisco Foundation, there's an Arizona Foundation. That one's actually statewide. Our community foundation is countywide. So we're focused on Stanislaus County. Yeah. And as you know, Modesto is the heart of, you know, in the county seat for, for Stanislaus. But our grant making is in Turlock, and we do, we kind of cover the whole county. Okay. Now, 87% of our dollars stay local. 13%, you know, our donors still may give to their universities that are out of t- town, out of state, other nonprofits. But the majority of our donors are really actively engaged in, in improving this community. And when you said there's a hundred and so funds that, that the count, the Stanislaus Community Foundation mm-hmm. manages, yeah. what, what do you mean by funds? So we have different fund types. So we have 160 funds, and, our, and uh, the fund types include scholarship funds. People um, love to give, uh, create scholarship funds named for their family, their mother, you know, a, a deceased loved one. So we have a lot of, that's probably one of our fastest growing segments of our philanthropy. Um, they love the tangibility of sending a kid to college. And so they set up a named fund through us. We invest all of our assets too, and so they're growing over time. And we return that investment into the fund. So let's say you set up the Isaac Family Fund at, the, at our community foundation with an initial gift, and then you can give from that. You, I'm legally cannot move money out of your fund as the CEO. You're the one that's doing your grant making from your own fund. Sure. So you, so we have scholarship funds, and then the other one. I'm not going to go into there. We have about six different types of funds. 
But the other one that's very popular is called donor advised funds. And they're very similar to private foundations in that you could set it up for your family or you as an individual, and then you retain the privileges of giving out of that fund. We do the back office work, invest, cut checks, track the grants, do all of that. Okay. We also, so we work with, you know, very philanthropically minded families um, who have high net worth to provide them counsel, to provide them our expertise in the community about what, what could really be impactful with their giving. And then we provide the transactional piece, the investments, the check cutting, the remittance, gifts and grants, remittance, all of that. But the things I'm talking about with our work in education is sort of not related to our donor-related work. It's really our leadership in this community. And increasingly, that's where my passion really is, is in the leadership side of the house. We certainly um, support our donors. They're incredible givers, very generous people. And we are increasingly called in our community, and many community foundations are shifting to also serve in leadership roles as conveners, you know, around key issues in the community. Because as an intermediary, we can. You know, we're not in the hustle and bustle of providing direct services. So we're much more reflective, much more intentional. We work with our nonprofits to create that same space for them so they could think about their business models, think about how they're delivering services and whether they're actually making an impact. And so you act as a facilitator between nonprofit service providers and the community, essentially. Yes. Yes. And what I would tell you is we're certainly here to strengthen the nonprofit sector. Our leadership work is really focused on systems. And so we're here to really uh, make meaningful systems change because our systems are often set up increasingly to actually be not of benefit to the people they're trying to serve. So our education systems, they've grown overly bureaucratic and they're not necessarily recognizing that before kindergarten kids show up on the first day of kindergarten, there's something that happens between ages zero and five that impacts how that kid's going to spend the rest of their academic career. Sure. So they're not mandated to do that as schools, as think about zero to five, but it affects everything that happens from the first day of kindergarten on. So the community foundation is really focused on meaningful systems change across segments, right? So we bring higher ed, we bring the K-12 districts, we bring zero to five, we look at data together among these segments of our educational system and we look at the data longitudinally so they could see it and it brings forth a whole level of wisdom that wouldn't have happened because these people don't typically get in a room together right they're not mandated to so that's where we think we're here to strengthen the nonprofit sector we're here to develop individual leaders but what we're really here to do is disrupt systems now when you when you speak about systems and educational systems is this exclusive to the Central Valley Modesto series Turlock that you see this drop off in whether it's readership or education? Mm -hmm. I think it's happening all over the country. You know, obviously our, again, our area of focus is Stanislaus County. Sure. But there's other community foundations up and down the state of California and across the country that are doing similar work in other issues, whether it's education, homelessness, housing, shelter services, economic opportunity and mobility. Um, so there's other community foundations doing similar work on other issues. And a, and a community foundation, the beauty of a community foundation is because we're so place-based, we reflect the community and its needs. So in Santa Cruz and San Diego, those two community foundations are really into conservation and water. And so, so you know, they all look a little differently, like they're very into environmental, you know, work. Not so much in Stanislaus. It's based on kind of the echo of the community and what they're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. First and foremost, the donors, obviously, but also, you know, what's needed in terms of leadership. We as a community foundation feel that we can stand in the gap that exists sometimes in leadership, like the vacuum that exists. 
and really pull people together in a way where we're not necessarily neutral, but we're a win-win. Like we're not here to just advance our mission. We're I can't win until everybody else is winning. Sure. And winning for you is the community winning. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, Marion, I was stalking your Instagram page for the last <laughs> week or so just to look at some information, tidbits, you know, things I can ask you about. That's and I awesome. saw this photo. So I have to put in a plug here, but... I know Marion's sister. I've known Marion's sister, Susie Yonan, who a lot of you people know out there. Mm-hmm. Marion is Susie's sister. Susie is Marion's mm-hmm. their siblings. You know, yeah. whichever one you ask, she's they'll the tell baby. You, yeah, she'll, <laughs> they'll tell you one thing. So I saw this photo, and it's Susie in a baby stroller, and mm-hmm. then it's you and your sister Vianne. Yes. So tell me about where you were born and raised. Sure. Tell me about being raised in an Assyrian household. I was born in Baghdad, and we left when I was five. Um, we went, uh, so it was my older sister, Vianne, who's now an anesthesiologist. She's a physician here in Modesto. Um, and we went to England. We were there for just a very short period of time, maybe two months, three, I don't even think that, trying to seek asylum, just like Kula Surai and like all the Assyrians that were trying at the, this was 80, I think it was 79, 80. And we were trying to seek a religious asylum to the United States. And it was very difficult to do that from England at the time. So then Babi Yimmi, my parents decided, let's go to Athens, Greece. So we moved there. And And my mom was pregnant at the time. And so she had Susie in Athens. So Susie was born en route, you know, in Athens. We were in Athens probably almost two years, like a year and a half to two years. So we lived there. And while we were there, right after Susie was born, a major earthquake struck the city and we were dislocated for a while. We were, had to live in a tent. And there were a lot of Suraya with us, like Nashani, you know, people that we knew and, and that made it, I think, better. And mm-hmm. as a kid, it was like an adventure, you know, like, cool, now we get to live in a tent. You know? But I can imagine my parents with a newborn and two young girls and not knowing what their future held, still managed to keep it together. Did like, you... I'm in awe of that, actually. Did you sense their stress, kind of no, their emotions? Not really. Is no. it because they kept it kind of under, under I wraps? think so. And I was clueless, you know, I was at that time, six, seven. So maybe I absorbed it in a subconscious way. It was just an adventure through my eyes. Um, we eventually got asylum, but to Canada and moved to, to Canada. And I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. There must have been maybe 30 families and we got to know them very quickly and we'd go on picnics. And, wow. you know, I just, it was a very idyllic childhood. So we got to Canada by age seven and I didn't know a word of English. Neither did my older sister and Susie was about two at that time. And so we, we were immediately immersed into school there and learned English. And within a few years, both Vianne and I were competing and winning speech and debate competitions. That's amazing. Yeah. So we were voracious readers. I I will always credit my parents for taking us to the library and reading to us. That's why literacy is so important to me. But it's also why I've fallen in love with communication. Like I remember viscerally knowing at age seven, feeling like I was different and feeling left out. And not being able to communicate because I'm, you know, I'm Surat and oh. I didn't understand. I couldn't speak English, and I never wanted to feel like that again. Hmm. And I knew, I somehow connected communication and verbal communication and writing and you know, with being you know having power or having um, success. You know, it's that classic American dream. Like my parents sacrificed so much. I was not going to squander that sacrifice by like frittering away my academic life. My older sister was certainly that way too. So we were very driven from a young age to succeed. 
and I learned English and started competing in speech and debate competitions. So we lived in Canada from the age of, I was like seven, almost eight when we got there till 15. And then that was uh, 89. Yeah. And had a great time in Canada, almost a decade. Um, but my parents, like, and they wanted us to grow up with Assyrians. And we had a lot of relatives in Modesto, a lot in Chicago. So every summer and winter, we'd go to either Chicago. We'd you know go back and forth between Chicago and Modesto for vacations. And we just loved it. Mm-hmm. And so finally, my parents decided, let's move down to Modesto. You know, there were a ton of people here they knew. And so... We moved to Modesto in 89. I was a sophomore in high school by then. Vianne was a junior and Susie was in elementary school. Yeah, we've been here ever since. You know, I, I moved away to Phoenix for about five years in the 2000s. But for the most part, Modesto has been my home base. It's the closest thing I have to hometown. I went to high school here and then went to Modesto Junior College and then went to UC Davis. I got my degree in communications. So again, that thread <laughs> of like, yeah. yeah. And I started my career in radio. I was a news reporter. Um, so this is, you're used to this. I'm used to talking into a microphone. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was a writer for a while for a magazine and then went into public relations and marketing and yeah. lobbying. When I was in Arizona, I was a lobbyist. And then we were ready to start a family. And so we wanted to move back to Modesto to be closer to our, my parents and our whole family here. And I have two uh, incredible children. Uh, they're 12 and 9, Olivia and Luke. And so I came back here and, be- and started my job as VP of Vice President of Marketing at Community Hospice. And mm-hmm. I was there for eight years and then um, became CEO of the Community Foundation in 2012. Great. So I want to go back to the point that you made. You said at seven years old, you realized that there was something different, like you, you did not want to be left out. Yeah. There was a barrier, a language barrier. Mm-hmm. When you go back to that time, yeah. did you realize, you know, I'm a Syrian, I only speak yeah. this language, I need to kind of disconnect from Assyrianism or what how did you feel gosh that's a great question I definitely I mean at at that age it was more about communication not being able to speak English so I knew I just remember the feeling of being othered and being like on the outside looking in being on the outside looking in is probably the most familiar feeling to me it's something that just has resonated with me my entire life Mm -hmm. I will tell you that when we were growing up in Canada, I knew I was different, even after I learned English, because my parents cooked different food. We spoke Surat, Rubatha. So like we, I knew like I wasn't Canadian, right? Yeah. And I had this experience of in the first seven years of life, which are the formative years of a human being's life, of moving around to all these different countries, seeking something better than where we sure. were. That seeking something better, that feeling of being on the outside looking in, that lack of being able to communicate, all those things have informed me and formed me in a way that is actually led to the strengths I think I possess as the CEO of the Community Foundation and as an advocate for others who are on the outside looking in, who feel marginalized, Mm -hmm. who are suffering, who don't have voice. Um, So it has really caused me to go into this work of you know philanthropy and community change and social innovation and giving voice to those who cannot speak for themselves so those years were formative for many things now the identity of being a syrian i will tell you i i i wanted desperately to be with my Assyrian people when i was a teenager in canada and we come here visit in the summer like when my parents said we're going to move to modesto and we were thrilled we couldn't wait to be here right but when i got here 
whole different <laughs> whole different thing because I'd grown up in Canada from you know age seven to age 15 and I was like I had a Canadian accent I said a all the time and yeah so the Suraya here at the high school they're like dude who are you like what you're not really a Syrian I'm like yes I am I'm one of you <laughs> did you have these like high expectations for coming to the valley it's funny because the Syrians say uh, so you would come during the summer you saw you saw yes. this whole different yeah you're right okay oh, i love that i've never heard that saying yeah. yes and so here you know because my sister and i were very academically minded and a lot of surayim just to be honest weren't as much that was hard you know i mean we just we didn't fit in we didn't fit in with suraya and we didn't fit in with Amerikaya. Mm -hmm. so i struggled in my high school years and in my college years too when i was at mjc when i went to uc davis you know the other thing to understand is i'm the first woman in my family ever and since now it's happening all the time but first woman in my family back in 94 when i did this to move out of my house without being married first because mm -hmm. i went to uc davis sure. i did it before my older sister because she actually went to stanislaus state in turlock so she stayed home and went to four-year university so um so i struggled with my assyrian identity and i don't know that i fully have ever reconciled it because yeah. i still don't as we were talking before the podcast i don't have a lot of assyrian friends i love being assyrian I wouldn't trade my Assyrian identity for anything. I'm so proud of it. I speak Assyrian at home. I, I wouldn't trade our history, our lineage. I think being Assyrian and understanding suffering and human suffering, given that it's in our DNA. Absolutely. And we have a, actually a moral imperative as Suraya to make the world a better place. Yeah, I, I truly believe that. I know we were talking about that earlier and. We were talking, I was sharing with you that if I had been given a choice, is there any other ethnicity or race that you would want to be born? Yeah. I, I would rather, I would say Assyrian, Me but too. no other race. Me I think too. something yeah. something about us, I don't yeah. know what it is. And it doesn't make us racist wherever. No. It's like I inhabit this identity and this skin and I do it with, with immense gratitude for every experience mm -hmm. I've gone through. And I think the lens that we have as Suraya we have ancient blood. I mean, we have a history that is, it's this—it's this, the history of civilization. And so when I say we have a moral imperative, I think we have a moral imperative to translate that suffering and transmute it. We don't stay there. And unfortunately, a lot of surayas stay there. And all I've ever seen with people that stay in suffering is just cynicism. Sure. It just leads to being mm -hmm. jaded and thinking and hopelessness. And that's not a place I choose to reside. But I've had to reconcile my Assyrian identity with my, you know, I'm living in America and being more American too. Right. So I, I was going through your bio and there's a number of achievements that you have uh, that are attached to your name, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's winning the Modesto Bees 20 under 40 of young professionals to watch and MJC distinguished alumni in 2017. Mm -hmm. Obviously, as, as a professional, people go through failures in life. Where have you failed in your professional life, oh, you know, that, that you can share with the listeners? And how did you overcome that? Yeah, I don't. That's a good question. I don't know that I've like failed outwardly. I think there's been things along the way I've struggled with people's people, to be honest with you, like personalities or co-workers or bosses or board members. And that's always been a struggle. I don't perceive anything as a failure. I'm sure you don't either. I mean, I think everything is here to inform us and we're here to learn and grow. And I actually learn more from failure than I've learned from being successful. 
terms of failure, I mean, I definitely struggled in my 20s to find a job that I enjoyed. Oh, actually, you know, I, I was at KCBS at, when I was doing radio work, and I had just come out of college, a year or two out of college, and I hated being in radio. Like, I realized, okay, this isn't my path. But instead of, like, just giving a two-week notice, I just walked out of the newsroom one day and never went, I called the editor and said, That's, <laughs> that, that was my last day. Yeah. So things like that were just young and dumb, kind of. Um, and kind of hopscotching around in my 20s trying to find my fit. Thankfully, when we came here and I landed at community hospice, I mean, that was eight years of growth and learning. But yeah, I don't know that there's been failure. There's been like, you know, projects that didn't go exactly the way we'd planned for them to go or whatever, but nothing like hardcore. Mm -hmm. It'll probably happen at some point soon. (laughs) So when you you were at KCBS, you were on the radio in San Francisco? No, I was a co-editor. Okay. When I was, I was, what happened was I was also at KFBK in Sacramento as an editor on Saturday mornings, KCBS on Sundays in San Francisco. This is the life of radio. Like you make so little money after, and then during the week, so I worked seven days a week. During the weekdays, I was at uh, KUIC in Vacaville, and there I was on the radio. I was Mm. a one-woman newsroom. But the other two were editor gigs. As editor, what do you doing as editor? Gosh, you're pulling down national news stories, editing them, um, writing intros, you know, p- putting together a whole newscast, like ordering the news stories, giving the anchor, you know, all the all the things they need, you know, all the content, that kind of stuff. Okay. It's a very busy job. And you're always like living by the top of the hour and the bottom of the hour. So mm. it's very time, times. And then at the end of the day, you throw your stuff in the garbage and you're done. You know, so there's no like long term work. But um, it was a great place to start. Definitely gave me, you know, some grounding in how news is made and and consumed. (laughs) You know, I'm someone who uh, is always continuing to better both my writing skills and presentation skills as well as communication skills. Now, what, what is one thing that you could say that would make for a better and an effective communicator? Hmm. So I think my strength, what I've led to my success, if that was going to be one of your questions, I'll answer it now, has been my communication skills. I think to be a good communicator, you have to have an ordered mind. Your Mm. mind has to be not cluttered. And I would, um, so be very intentional and clear. I always take, I do a lot of speeches. I'm, I'm constantly, you know, presenting or speaking or what have you. And people always say, wow, you're a really powerful communicator, right? And I think I always pause before I go on stage and clear my mind. So whether it's in the car, before I go into like an auditorium or whatever, I just sit for a minute, try to just focus on my breathing. So a little mindfulness is helpful. And then I think when I, when I talk, I think of threes or fives. Like it's always an odd number, but I think what are the three main ideas I want to get across to people? Or what are the five main things I want to leave, excuse me, people with? And I always say that at the beginning, like there's, you know, whatever I'm talking about, I'm saying there's three things I want to impart to you, or there's five things we're going to learn together today. So I, so I kind of create some structure that you way. You set the expectation. Yeah, and I tell them what it is. Exactly. Okay. I always talk about what I'm going to talk about so that the, we're all like, sure, we're in the same room. <laughs> and I try to be very um, self-deprecating too and natural like I never just read off a prompter or read off a piece of paper if anything I'll have on a piece of paper those three or five things but I want to surprise myself a little bit yeah and I also want to read the energy of the room if people are like nodding out or they're on their phones or they're like you know you just if they're not making eye contact like then I change up what I'm saying but if you're just reading a very structured thing you've already lost the room because you haven't read their energy and how they're responding 
So those are some of the things just off the top of my head. How do you stay ordered your day-to-day life? That's great. So I've, um, I asked several people a few years ago how they stayed ordered. I watched people that were very clear and present during their day. Like they'd be in meetings and they would just not be frenzied. So I asked them what their, how they maintained that equanimity, if you will. And they said they had, they all had morning rituals. They all had things they did very specifically in the morning, like getting a cup of coffee and just sitting. And it usually involves stillness, whether it was meditation, prayer, journaling. So most days, if my nine-year-old son isn't up before me, because he gets up early too, I get up before my kids. I sit in my favorite red chair and it faces this expansive view of windows and the light comes in and I try to meditate. Um, and just for a few minutes, even I have my coffee with me. I meditate, I pray, I journal. I, I usually read something inspirational mm-hmm. and yeah, on Sundays, if, if my kids aren't around, I'll do that for an hour or two. Like yeah. I'll just sit and just enjoy it. Try to get, stay off my phone, obviously. And I, and I actually even think about my intention for the day. I think, how do I want to move through this day? Usually I do that at the beginning of the week. How do I want to move through this week? I'll do that on Monday morning. What's, what, what, what intention do I want to hold mm-hmm. this week? What's currently on your reading list? Oh, gosh. Um, it's an incredible book. It's actually right there. John O'Donohue, Anam Kara. It's a book of prose. He was a Celtic uh, poet and philosopher. He's mind-blowing. Every word that falls out of that man's mouth is rich with meaning. So I'm reading that. A book um, of prose. Mm-hmm. P-R-O-S-E. S-E, okay. yeah, prose. Uh, it's called Anam Kara. It's beautiful, haunting. I think actually the Irish have a lot in common with Suraya, the Assyrians, because they, they've suffered greatly, mm. but they transmute that suffering into knowing and wisdom, right? And he's definitely, he died a few years ago suddenly, at very young, in his early 50s of a heart attack, which is too bad because his voice was just an incredible one. And then I love anything by the American Buddhist nun Pema Chodron. So she, um, one of her books, I've read over and over again, I'm just reading it again. It's called Living Beautifully in Times of Uncertainty and Change. So those are just two of, and you can see I have a stack. Yeah. <laughs> it's always shifting and changing. What is one thing that you can encourage Assyrians out there, mm-hmm. you know, whether they're in Australia, Canada, yeah. Europe, and the United States, how, how does this generation become more involved in terms of civic participation, public policy, public involvement? I love that question. Well, first of all, I don't think we have a choice. I really do think we have a calling, especially Suraya. Our voices are so unique. Our experience, our background, our DNA is so unique and so infused with wisdom of our ancestors that we have a calling to do something with that wisdom and to change the world from whatever corner we're in. So what I would encourage my Assyrian brothers and sisters, wherever they are in this world, is to find the thing that they're either curious about or the thing that makes them passionate and just do that thing, right? So whatever that is, it may be homelessness, it may be arts, it may be music, but do the thing that makes you come alive. And you'll find your people when you start doing that thing. There are people come alongside you but I do think um, civic engagement is important. You know, you can write columns for your news, your local newspaper. You could start a blog. There's a lot of different incubators for elected office where you can um, just learn about elected office, sit on a board, join a nonprofit board, volunteer somewhere. 
So there's just the, the, the list of things to do and ways to engage in the community. The how of it, the what is endless. Mm -hmm. What I would encourage Suraya to do is the why. Like really get clear on your why and everything else follows. Why is it important for, for Assyrians to become involved in public office, mm -hmm. perhaps? Well, I think I mean, I, it goes back to me like we're, we're very unique human beings. There's a wisdom we possess mm -hmm. um, that I think this world needs right now. But I, and I think we can't stay jaded and cynical. And I see a lot of Suraya staying in that place and othering themselves, you know, where they don't feel like they're really American or Australian. They're Suraya. It's they're like they're the separate. Lines. Yeah. And it's like, no, you can be Assyrian, fully Assyrian, and still deeply engage in whatever country you're living in right now. So, and maybe that was the point all along, right? Is that we were meant to take these seeds and spread them, not because we're in diaspora, but because we're meant to germinate something new where we find ourselves. Sure, because we can transcend from this experience. You Absolutely. know, because a lot of us now are first generation. You yeah, know? me too. You and me both. Yeah. And, and we carry water back and forth right so like i remember that feeling when i came here from canada and it was hard because i wasn't fully assyrian and i wasn't fully american and what i've realized in my 30s and now early 40s is it's okay you can be both you can actually be both fully sure you can be fully assyrian and fully american there's not some weird dividing mathematical algorithm to a human being that says you're 50-50, 35, 25 this, 75 that. I mean, there's, you can be fully Assyrian and fully American. Hmm. And you think like I just, you know, I was listening to a podcast myself about, I listened to a lot of like spiritual things and religious things. And someone was saying Jesus was fully God and fully human. Why aren't you running for public office? I've been asked that a lot, actually. By people who? ask me, local people that, that ask me to local run for mayor. Local movers and shakers? Yeah. Okay. Have asked me to run for mayor. I'm not, dis I'm not counting it out in the future, but I've seen um, the you know public office is, is a hard road to walk. It consumes your whole life. And I have two very young children. They're 9 and 12, like I said. And I really uh, want to be there for them. I don't want to put them in the spotlight. So I'm going to, you know, and, and being at the Community Foundation is the platform there is can be just as impactful as being the mayor or being an elected official, if not more so, because sure. we can stand the test of time. You know, we're not here to get voted in or out. And so we can have harder conversations. We can be bolder. We can fail, you know, more often, let's say. But I'm not counting it out. It's just not the season in my life right mm. now. Do you think Assyrians that are that have gained a status in terms of their professional career, their academic mm -hmm. career, are they accountable to the Assyrian nation? Like mm -hmm. what what wow. what is their accountability? That's a great question. I think um, so. I'll take one view of it is that they're certainly accountable with their success for representing themselves as Assyrian. So they should be telling people I'm Assyrian. I, I, I tell everyone I meet I and mean, when, I, when I'm introduced that I'm Assyrian American. I'm very proud of that. I don't say I was just born in the Middle East or I'm a Christian from the Middle East. Yeah. I lay claim to the fact that I'm Assyrian um, and I'm very proud of that. So I think they have a, uh, an, I think, so again, just my opinion, people yeah. are welcome to disagree, um, that they have a moral obligation to, be, to represent themselves as Assyrian when they're out doing the good work that they're doing. The accountability of the Assyrian nation, that's interesting. I mean, 
I don't know what that exactly would look like. You mm-hmm. know, it's certainly you go back and you help other Suraya, you help Assyrians succeed. I'm open to that. But I don't really connect on in a lot of ways to the Assyrian community right yeah. now. You know, that doesn't mean it won't shift and change. I don't go to a lot of Assyrian parties. I don't go to Assyrian church. I don't have a lot of Assyrian friends. But it's certainly my Assyrian family is very close, and they're all local, thankfully, other than Susie, who's in Iraq. But... Um, <laughs> I don't identify quite as much with my Assyrian community like in my day-to-day life in the way that Susie does. Sure. And I wonder sometimes if that was the Canada thing. Like, Mm. Vianne and I grew up in Canada and we're much less, like, you know, immersed in the Assyrian culture. And Susie came here in elementary school and all her friends starting elementary were Suraya. Yeah. And so she's much more like Assyrian in Mm. her day-to-day life, you know, and you could see now when she's moved back to Iraq. Absolutely, yeah. But we're not. The two older sisters, me and my older sister, are not quite as immersed. It doesn't mean we're not proud of it. We don't identify as it. It just is a little different for us. What are you curious about right now? Oh, so much. I mean, I'm curious about how change can be sustained over time. I'm curious about energy and how people manage energy. I'm curious about where this world is headed. <laughs> the world, Cur- the United States, or yeah, just the world in the general? The world in general, but you know, I'm curious about where this country is headed. You know, given that there's such divisiveness, sort of in our national politics, and that t- tone and tenor is so ugly, to be honest with you. Whether you agree with the Republicans, the Democrats, Trump, I mean, none of, I don't even, and to be honest with you, I tune all of that out because it is so divisive. Yeah, I'm curious about my kids. They're, every day they, they change and grow and they've humbled me in the most beautiful ways. So I'm, I'm curious about how I stay intentional for them as they themselves move through life and stay present with them and aware and supportive of them. I'm curious about how I can be a different parent because I was parented by two people who are incredible, but they were immigrants. And so again, it's that uh, dualistic, non-dualistic thing. Our parents instill certain morals and ethics. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I'm, I'll go in and out of resentment of that. Yes, I've definitely struggled with that, Peter. How have you overcome that? I, I had to work on myself. I mean, my, I think my kids helped me overcome it. Um, so I had to overcome, the way I overcame it, I'll be lots of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> but I also realized my parents were doing the best that they could yeah. at the time. So looking back, you know, they were very, like all Assyrian parents back then, maybe not so much now, but when we first got here, and I know people listening to this will identify, especially first-gen Assyrians, like my parents were hella conservative. <laughs> I couldn't go over, like boys couldn't call our house, like never... God forbid, went out on a date. I couldn't go to parties, couldn't go to slumber parties. Like, you name it, I couldn't do it. You know, obviously I resented that in that time and then season that followed in college when I finally had my first taste of freedom at Davis. But as I've gotten older and had my own kids, I realized my parents were doing the best they could and they were in survival mode. Yeah. You know, they were in a different country, far away from their own parents, their own siblings, no longer generating the income they had as professionals. They're both college-educated professionals in Iraq. All of that's wiped out. And they're in a country where they don't know the language. They don't know the morality, the norms, the social norms, Mm -hmm. right? So they're in survival mode. And what do people in survival mode do? They constrict and contract. And they go to a place of like keeping their kids in line from like a place of fear and shame and guilt. 
And that's not like, I'm not saying that because it's just reality. Yeah. I think any parent would come from that place. Mm-hmm. I think I, I definitely would. I'd be like, oh my goodness, I don't know what's going on. So I'm going to yeah. be in survival mode. And that means I'm going to keep my kids really close to me. Yeah, close. And so they did it out of love and they were doing the best they knew how. And I've only come to that in the last few years, just even having my own kids. And so they were, I mean, and they managed and they were loving parents. I mm. mean, just, and so it's come full circle. Yeah. Like they're human and wonderful people. And they raised three, I think, you know, well-adjusted daughters who are hardworking. And yeah, I'm so grateful that I had the parents I had. I know it- Earlier when I asked the question, it was resentment, but Anna and you, I love you two both. Like, there's no way I would trade them for right. any other set of parents. Yeah. Like, and it was and challenging, right? It was o- hard. Yeah. And over time, you're like, you make a decision or you mm-hmm. start thinking in a way and you reflect back and you're like, that's totally something my mom or dad would yes. do. Yes. You know? Yeah. You kind of come full circle and realize, <laughs> oh, wow, look at me talking to my kids the same way they talk yeah. to. I don't do the chiquella thing, though. No, I don't. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh. What? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, life. I mean, I love my life. I'm, I, I live an extraordinary life. And I am so grateful for it. Um, so I get out of bed every morning knowing that I'm going to see my kids and that I get to hang out with them and, and get ready for school and work. And I love my job. I love the Community Foundation. I love this community that I'm in, this town, Modesto, Stanislaus, Northern California. Like, I just love just where I'm at in my life right now, mm-hmm. you know, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. So I get out of bed because there's so much to do and see. And I, I love seeing my kids just, they're intense children, Yeah. you know, and I, and every day is very different from the next day or the day before. So Let's see what today's about. So I, I wake up curious you know, yeah. about what it's going to bring. Earlier this afternoon, I was uh, at the Preservation. That's a cafe yeah, in downtown Modesto. I hang Modesto. out there a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I was reading the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Yeah. And it was an article on mental health. Okay. And the article opened up with how one in five children in America are affected with mental health. Yeah. Does the Stanislaus Community Foundation address mental health? Is this something that's in their sites? Yeah. So in, in our education work, um, so we've taken, it's interesting you ask, we take Stanislaus Reads, which I mentioned, the Early Literacy Initiative, and Stanislaus Futures, the college-going initiative, and we've actually now blown up all of that into a larger cradle-to-career partnership with all of our K-12 districts, higher ed, and MJC, our community college, and private sector, faith, nonprofits. They've all come to the table. We've scaled the work to include kinder readiness, third grade reading is still there, fifth and eighth grade math, high school to college completion, so that's still there, and then finally career track, like after high school, actually going into vocation or, or you know, technical training. All of that, all of the things I just mentioned have a series of data underneath them, sub-indicators that include mental health. So we know that a child, when they come to a school, if they're living in a traumatic environment, which many kids are these days, that's going to impact how they learn, literally how their brain functions. So we are beginning to explore not just mental health, but the socioeconomic status of these families, mm-hmm. the, the trauma they may or may not be living in, the college level, the education level of their parents. There's so many variables that go into a child's health and well-being. 
and wellness, but certainly mental health is a big one. So we are exploring it. We're in a data phase right now where we're, again, unpacking all of this data because we do believe we should immerse ourselves first in that before jumping to solutions. Um, but I do think a lot of what we're going to work on includes mental health absolutely. Okay. as part of sort of how do you get every child through those critical gateways I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. It's going to include a whole host of strategies, yeah. not just educational interventions. In fact, it's often not what happens in the classroom. It's everything that happens outside the classroom. The impact. Home. Absolutely. Lately, I've been seeing a lot of panels. There was a, a mental health awareness panel mm-hmm. hosted by Assyrians in wow. Phoenix, wow. in Los Angeles, and even in Modesto. How cool. Yeah. And so I feel as though now there is this... Growing awareness. There's a, an awareness and the stigma is starting to kind of peel away. Yeah. But how, what, what is it that you think our community can do more in Gosh. terms of... Well, I mean, think about what I just said. I mentioned that I had a therapist. I mean, a few years ago, Peter... That would not have been okay to mention, not yeah. just to Suraya, but to Amrikaya too, right? But for Suraya, like we have a hard time acknowledging that we need help. You know, we bury everything. We don't like yeah, You know, it's yeah, like don't talk. Yeah, yeah, embarrassing. Like we literally just shove it under the rug. And so I think not just us, any minority culture, like it's a hard for us to like you know understand that we have emotions, that we can access deeper awareness, that. Mental health is as important as physical health, you know, and we were all grew up being yelled at, you know, like, come (laughs) on. So it's like, um, and again, it's not overly traumatic, but like, those are things we have to understand informs the way we treat others. So I think mental health is so important. Self-care is so important, you know, and I'm hoping, I'm glad to hear Suraya are talking about it Mm -hmm. and accessing services, you know, that's so important. If, If someone's struggling, it's like, don't bury it. Yeah. See a professional. Was was therapy one of the the catalysts for your career growth? You say, or was that in in the middle of yeah. the prime of your career? Yeah, at the height of my career, I got a divorce. I will tell you, failure actually to come back to that question. My biggest failure is the fact that I couldn't. I was did not stay married. You know that I failed at something so fundamental. And it was a whole host of reasons, which we're not going to get into this book. Nothing bad, nothing evil. You failed at something really sacred. Did a lot of therapy at that season of my life. Therapy has certainly informed me about my leadership, being more mindful and aware. It certainly has made me more vulnerable. What people will tell you is I'm a very honest leader. I'm bold. I'm known for being innovative. I'm known, though, for telling the truth. And my truth, right? It may not be everyone's truth, but I'm the one that sort of pushes the envelope in conversations when no one else is going to say the thing that needs to be said. I kind of say it. And whether, again, people can push back, but it's naming things. All of that has come from therapy, from being able to talk about our, our you know, what's going on inside us. How does someone take that initial step and tell themselves or be at peace with themselves? I'm going to go make an appointment with a therapist. Yeah. You know, what is... I think, um, I mean, for me, I came to the end of myself. I realized I had no tools mm-hmm. for what I was going through. And so I knew I needed somebody else to help me. That wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And until then, Marianne Cannon, formerly Marianne Yonan, did everything. She knew how to do everything, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's just a process of emotional maturity and spiritual maturity to realize you don't, we don't know everything. I still half the time, you know, wake up, I'm curious because I don't have any answers. Yeah. You know, and so I think it takes a lot to go, I don't know everything. And I'm going to talk to someone. And even if it's not formally seeking a therapist, 
speaking with your friends, like finding that wise person in your life. And if you look around, there's always someone that's a few steps ahead of you on whatever journey you're about to take that can help guide you. It's not the end of the world. So even if it's not formal therapy, which I encourage, but even if it's just um, speaking with a, a good friend who's wise and can hold space for you, you know? Yeah. That sounds so California. <laughs> hold space. <laughs> so you, as, as CEO of uh, the Stanislaus Community Foundation, where are you going to take this foundation in the next five to 10 years? Or what is something innovative that you're working on? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, we're super excited about our Cradle to Career partnership because as, as I just mentioned, we've really re- scaled it to be much bigger than, than the, the two earlier iterations, those two earlier initiatives. So it's much bigger, many more partners at the table. And we're building partners. absolutely okay. community education partners, all faith sectors, based well. faith-based, nonprofit, private sector, mm-hmm. public sector, and education. But we're building something really sturdy, a container that's sturdy to hold all of the prototypes and programs and policy level changes that are going to come out of that work. Mm-hmm. The other thing I'm very excited about that we're beginning to pivot and shift into is taking all of that we learned in education and now applying it to economic opportunity. In Stanislaus County, County. Modesto, Turlock. The question we're beginning to ask ourselves is, how do we build an inclusive economy that leaves nobody behind? And how do we do that in the Central Valley of California when, you know, we face major demographic challenges, education challenges, health challenges, intergenerational poverty? So... Uh, we're excited. That's where we see the next mm-hmm. body of work opening up for us. And mm-hmm. we're just now at the wide lip of the funnel where we're exploring that. Yeah. How do we create inclusive economy? I don't have the answer to it, so don't mm-hmm. ask me that. Because, no. But that's where we're, our exploration is taking us. Okay. And it, again, that will be similar to our cradle to career work where we'll begin mm-hmm. with data first to go, what, well, what, how do we define inclusive yeah. economy? What does the data tell us? Who's already working in this space? Who's sitting at the table? Who's not? Who's left out of the, the conversations? Mm-hmm. And beginning to play a role there like we've done in education and bring people together. I know we, you spoke about this earlier, but how does, let's say, you know, a very well-off, wealthy Assyrian approaches you and wants to start a fund. How does someone go about that? Oh, it's fairly easy, actually. All they're needing is a fund agreement, which we have a document, just a few pages, where they fill out, you know, that information. They make their initial gift to us because mm-hmm. it's all tax deductible. And gift, monetary gifts. Yeah. Just, okay. And then their fund is operational and ready to go. They decide the name of the fund and then they get access to our portal where they can give online. It's almost like online banking. Sure. And then if they want our counsel and advice, we'll certainly help them with mm-hmm. finding the right nonprofits that meet sort of their goals. Or sometimes they just utilize us transactionally as an investment vehicle and they're not okay. really looking for counsel. But it's fairly easy to do. Just call and, me, hit yeah. me up. <laughs> and so someone can approach you and say, hypothetically, I have a million dollars and mm-hmm. I want this to go to scholarships absolutely minority scholarships yep. or opportunities yeah the like majority that. of our scholarships are actually for minority how students. can young assyrians apply for your scholarship on our website stanislauscf.org okay stanislauscf yeah okay. i'd love to see more assyrians apply and i'll also put that in the show notes that would be uh, great we just for... closed our scholarship portal for this for the next you know for the fall mm-hmm. students so um the the next cycle will be open in november of 2019 and it'll close in March. So they have lots of time between November and March to apply of, of, you know, um, of next year. And then they would get scholarships for 2020. You know, I want to explore before hitting rec- on the microphone on the computer. We spoke about disconnecting. Mm-hmm. And you said that you run lo- you're limited on technology in the house. You don't have a mm-hmm. laptop, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't have a laptop. I don't have a computer. I don't have a printer. 
I have my phone. In your house. You don't have a printer. You don't have a laptop. No, I don't have cable. I don't. I have a small TV. I don't, I'll mm. show it to you when we're done. It's like people make fun of my TV because it's tiny. My kids hate it, obviously. Yeah. What is your philosophy behind that? Um, I just, I don't, uh, I don't find it in, um, entertaining. I mean, like I'll watch a movie. Like yeah. I, if I'm hanging out by myself, I may put on a, a movie or something. But um, it doesn't really nourish me you're disconnecting from work essentially when you don't have a laptop in the house yeah yeah i don't actually think about work a lot when i'm at home i think we talked about that and what i mean by that is i don't think about like specific projects or tactics i read my books on spirituality or my books of prose and i promise you that generates my batteries in such a meaningful way that when i go back to the office i'm so filled up like i'm so ready for whatever comes at me. Yeah. Um, and that's just been a thing that's emerged in my life in the last few years is being really intentional with stillness and mm. quiet. A lot of times, if usually my days are packed with meetings and even lunch meetings, but usually once a week I can find an hour in the middle of the day where I just come back home, put on my workout gear and go for an hour long walk in, at like 10 o'clock in the morning or at noon. And I listen to a podcast or I listen to nothing. And it's it just resets my batteries. Mm -hmm. Are you going to listen to the Assyrian podcast? Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I we, love it. Yeah. We have listeners from all over the world. If you had one thing to say to them, to all of them, what would it be? Oh. First of all, express how grateful I am to you, Peter, for having this podcast and, and putting me on it. It's lovely. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. More than I even expected to, believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, you know, I was just like when you're talking about yourself, it's weird, but yeah. I've really enjoyed it. So thank you for that. Uh, what I want to say to them is do it. Just do the thing that you are afraid to do. Usually on the other side of fear is everything that we've always wanted. Whatever it is that's keeping you up at night or you're not wanting to do, and it could be a hard thing. It could disappoint people you love dearly. It could scare people you love dearly. It probably scares you. It's calling you for a reason. It's showing up in your life for a reason. So do the thing. Do the thing you're, you're wanting to do but are scared to do. Or stop the thing that you need to stop because you're scared to. Those are, I would say, we have to start accessing our intention and really being very intentional. Again, being very mindful that we're here for a very short period of time. Yeah. We're a vapor. Absolutely. A vapor. It's like, it's gone. I love Annie Lamott. She's this author I've read also. She says, her my favorite line in one of her books, she's a, she says, 100 years from now, all new people. Wow. And you think about That's that. A yeah. hundred years from now, all new people. We're all out of here. Yeah. So let's make use of this time. Mm -hmm. Do the thing. Do the thing that's Especially keeping you Especially as Assyrians, let's be impactful. Oh gosh, yeah. especially Suraya, man. We were incarnated into this world, however you want to you know, frame it religiously. But we have, a, we have a mission we're here to serve. Yeah. You know, to love others, to be, you know, to bring that, that ancient knowingness into, into the world and change it for the better. Thank you so much, Mary. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please subscribe and review us wherever you listen to us. You can also help us by spreading the word about the Assyrian Podcast to your family and friends. Thanks, and see you all next week.